Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hi, everybody. Ron Spomer back with another episode of my podcast, Ron Spomer Outdoors, in which I relate old adventures of an outdoor writer and read some of my stories from way back when. And this time we are going to be reading a piece from 1993 that was in Shooting Sportsman magazine. So this is for all the bird hunters out there, lest you think I only report on big game hunting. No, I'm a I'm a bird hunter from way back when. In fact, I got started. I think the first bird I ever shot, short of sparrows in the barn, was a, a pheasant. Oh, it would have been a duck, a duck in South Dakota with Grandpa's 410. And then, of course, pheasants were the big game bird, and we hunted them all the time in South Dakota. But there are other birds there and in other places, and one of the most unusual, rare, and special is the prairie chicken. Well, the prairie chicken, we went hunting, I remember, in South Dakota. Yeah. Don't you remember when we went prairie chicken hunting? I've gone so many times, you're going to have to let me know which time. Well, you've only gone once with me. Oh, now I'm in trouble if I don't remember this one. (laughs) Anyway. Yes, dear, I remember it very well. You were wearing a blue dress (laughs) and you looked stunning. No? You can't remember that? No, I don't remember, honey. I remember pheasant hunting with you in South Dakota. Yeah, we went prairie chicken hunting. Did we get one? Uh, I can't remember, but I was pretty disappointed. I hate to say, because we walked and walked and walked and walked and we never. By golly, you were (laughs) chicken hunting, if you can remember that. Yeah, walk, walk is a big part of it. Well, let's just read this uh, story and see if we uh, have any memories that pop up. Hey, I called this one Completely Chicken, or maybe the editor called it Completely Chicken, but it's a clever little title. And the subtitle is Laugh If You Want, But I'm Nuts Over Prairie Chickens by Ron Spomer. You could call the prairie chicken the glamour bird of the North American uplands, but no one would believe you. The bird is just too rare too plainly dressed, and too practical to beat out flashy immigrants like ring-necked pheasants, storied natives like ruffed grouse, or high country oddities like white-tailed ptarmigan. Habitat works against the chicken too. There are no red and yellow hardwoods, no abandoned orchards or stone fences, no snow-capped mountain peaks and tumbling waterfalls. This is not to say the prairies of Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota lack visual appeal. 
the rolling monochromatic sea of grass is a minimalist's landscape with an austere beauty that tugs at a primitive memory buried under too, too many layers of domesticity. Or as a hunting partner said upon first seeing it, it looks so lonely. To most Americans suckled on woodlands, seacoasts, variegated farmland and mountains, prairie chicken country is foreign geography. It makes them homesick and slightly frightened. It didn't used to. A hundred years ago, pinnated grouse were backyard birds, comforting and sustaining to thousands of pioneer families in soddies and clapboard houses isolated on the prairie frontier. Pa or Junior walked ahead of the wagon on the long ride west from Ohio where chickens were common during early settlement, and they potted familiar summer yellow legs for supper. After the young farmer had enjoyed his first grain harvest in the new land, he sat in the wheat or corn stubble, sweaty thumbs ready on the hammers as flocks of flickering chickens appeared on the horizon. When the birds settled like dryland ducks into the field, gabbling and pecking for waste grain, he lined two or three heads over his right barrel and spent a shell. If he felt cocky and two birds crossed on the flush, he chanced the left barrel and then feel guilty that he was enjoying his work too much. Though neither participant in such dramas knew it, there was a symbiotic relationship. Prior to the coming of grain farmers, the eastern Great Plains prairie chicken population was constrained by limited availability of winter food, primarily native oak nuts. Scattered flocks along the 100th meridian probably migrated as many as 250 miles to reach suitable woody winter habitat. When corn, milo, and other grains suddenly appeared amid the great ocean of grass, living got easy. Chickens not only thrived, they expanded their range, following the patchwork of small grain fields north and west into Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, western South Dakota, eastern Montana and Wyoming, southern Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Native grasslands provided summer food and lodging. Farmers provided winter food. In the absence of woody cover for roosting, wintering grouse even relearned an ancient habit of snow roosting. Like rough grouse, they burrowed into snowbanks to survive cold nights. This sudden cornucopia of feathered protein in the latter half of the 19th century quickly inspired commercial enterprise. Farmers gleaning supper from the back 40 had their livings augmented by market gunners who began shipping hundreds of thousands of prairie hens east by rail. A good man with a gun could pot upwards of a hundred a day. For a time, Chicago restaurants gave $4 for a dozen dressed birds. The great chicken boom in any region reached its zenith when 60% of the land was in native grass, 40% in man's mix of seed-producing crops. When the balance tipped to grain, the prairie grouse with the pinnated feathers along its neck began slipping away, eventually becoming so rare that man saw fit to offer the chicken's old quarters to an overdressed china bird. So here's the irony. Man has completely destroyed the best native prairie chicken habitat in the former tall grass prairie. That's parts of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa. At the same time, he has created, in what was once the poorest western fringe chicken habitat of central South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas, today's best pinnated grouse habitat. 
The Kansas Flint Hills being wetter than either Nebraska or Dakota is true tall grass prairie and consequently has the most birds, some 200,000 or more out of a worldwide population of 500,000, more or less. So there you have it. An ordinary native grouse has become an exotic game bird in an altered environment at the edge of its native range. For it makes for interesting hunting. One's instinct upon being set loose in chicken country is to walk that cover and have at them. Lordy, but the grass is fine. If chickens are birds of the grass, then this is the perfect place for them. Mistake number one. Certainly, grass is where they roost and loaf and forage during summer and early fall. But stop, man, and look. It's everywhere. Grass running to grass and more grass. And even in the best prairie chicken range, there are only 14 birds or fewer per square mile. Usually many fewer. Crisscross a square mile of native blue stem or Indian grass, and these numbers will mean something to you. Like pain, frustration, disbelief. This isn't just a rare bird, it's damn near extinct. <laughs> and then you plod into a covey. A dozen sets of roaring wings, a dozen breasts barred brown, a dozen stubby black tails fanned in the wind, and you snap your gun too quickly to shoulder, shoot while it's still bouncing, curse yourself for your impatience, and immediately empty the second barrel for fear they'll be gone before you can. And then there they are climbing to cruising altitude and gliding, flapping, gliding over the horizon, laughing. My first chicken hunt, through no fault of mine, was a disaster. When you're a teenager without wheels, you're at the mercy of whoever takes pity on you. In this case, it was a school chum's father whose idea of finding chickens never expanded past his Chevrolet's window, his window of opportunity. As a result, I sat helplessly watching a glorious and beckoning landscape drift past my two-by-two-foot metal frame of the world. It was like slowly turning the pages of Bon Appetit under the stare of a starving man. Maybe we should walk that draw, I'd venture hopefully over the tinny beat of his radio. Might not be nothing in it, then where'd you be? Best wait until we see some. Well, we never saw any. <laughs> But the next year, my brother got his driver's license. Ah, he guided us to that, to that same Western Dakota landscape where we walked and walked and learned what the old man knew. <laughs> but in the waning hours of that day, I jumped a single chicken from the grass at the upper edge of a brushy draw. And when I shot, it fell. And that made all the difference. To avoid unproductive walking, you need a system. Decades ago, Kansas found its system. Rather than pursue fairies in the grass, sportsmen decided to await them in the grain. The Game Commission established a late fall hunt to coincide with the chicken's winter feeding behavior. By mid-November, the birds have packed up like roving wolves in Russian folklore. 20, 50, 100 or more birds awaken deep in the grass, stretch and grumble, shake the sleep from their heads, then they rise and attack a defenseless grain field. The first time I saw this, I thought they were blackbirds. You know, those big fall flocks that whirl over grain fields like swarms of bees? Well, there was the horizon, gray and lifeless in the dawn. And then there were these little black birds picking up and flying around. Blackbirds. No, prairie chickens. Holy, there must, there must be a hundred of them. 
I ducked deeper into the chicken wire blind that my farmer host had woven with corn stalks and stalked in the corner of his soybean field. Behind me, some 100 yards, stood another such hide, and behind it, a third, each of which concealed a hunter. That farmer may have known everything or next to nothing about Kansas prairie chickens, but he knew they were eating beans in this small field at sunrise in November, and that was good enough. The first wave passed too far to my right, but two stragglers flew straight overhead. I stood like a duck hunter, emptied the improved cylinder barrel, then the modified, and ran out to collect my first limit of Kansas chickens. Two birds. That was the only time I mistook prairie chickens for blackbirds. Most times I think they're ducks. Some mornings they're bluebills, direct and unwavering, flying fast and hard until they land and eat. One dawn, I was smugly introducing my friend Tom Muggier to prairie chicken pass shooting when this flock of bluebill chickens came roaring in at grasshopper strafing height. They parted around us and were going away when Tom spun and bounced two birds. I emptied my gun as a warning to the rest of them to never try that again. Other days, they're mallards or pintails, cautious, circling the field, looking it over, dropping low, then pulling up and circling again. There's no guarantee where or if they'll land. There are no decoys or calls to bring them close. You crouch along a fence, sometimes beside a hay bale. It's a chance, but a better or at least an easier chance than walking all that grass where November chickens, even when you do find them, Flush wild and well beyond shotgun range. Boy, that's the lesson I learned on sharp, uh, sharp tails as well as chickens. The later in the season, the wilder the birds get. They pack up. The little family groups get together. And so instead of having 10 or 12 birds in a family, you've got a two dozen. And then one bird is nervous, makes all the rest of them nervous. And then they'll get three or four or five packs and you'll start to see them in herds of 100, maybe even 200. Well, Nebraska and South Dakota use a different system. Open early when broods, although grown, are still together and still naive. Open when summer heat lingers and prairie grouse hold to the point and flush like big quail. This is wonderful when you can find them. Kansas recently began offering an early season too. I knew an old timer in South Dakota who found chickens by hunting their spring booming grounds. Over the years, he noticed that he nearly always found fall birds near those leks, which is what you call the dancing ground in the spring, where up to 100 males gather to dance and call and seduce hens in a ritualistic spring orgy, a procreation fever. Biological research backs that old timer. Radio telemetry has shown males do not move far from these traditional spring mating grounds. Most hens will nest within a mile or two of the lek where they breed. In autumn, old males return to the grounds and they dance just enough to stake their claims to a spring territory. The young males visit to get their first lessons in prairie chicken courtship ritual, male bonding. So whenever the old man found another spring lek, he'd commit it to memory and return to hunt around it in the fall. Most leks remain active for years. Gradually, he learned where September coveys hung out. Unfortunately, I've never stayed in one place long enough to accomplish that. Though for two years, I drove to the Fort Pier National Grasslands at dawn in April, stopping every half mile or so to listen for the odd, hollow booming calls of the pinnated grouse. On a carefully guarded county map, 
I marked locations which read like a treeless version of roughed grouse coverts. Johnson allotment, Dogtown Hill, Schoolhouse Corner, Chicken Soup. Few hunters are going to scout all spring for a few days of hunting in November or in September. They depend on guidance or advice from the locals. Never be too proud to ask a farmer or a school bus driver, mailman, or cowboy where the chickens are. Well, I see them on that grassy ridge there nearly every morning. Nice little bunch of yellow legs. You might bring me one if you get into them. Again, biology confirms this. Radio-tagged male grouse range over 262 acres in June, but only 79 acres in late August. Females with broods moved the least in late summer, but in October they got footloose, and by November they were wandering over some 800 acres each day. Young males moved up to seven miles. So we hunt while the birds are still tied to summer routine, sleeping in the grass and eating grasshoppers. By mid-September, the habitat will have been narrowed somewhat. Cattle will have hammered much pasture. Some wheat fields will be plowed and barren. Bottomland grass might be cut short and rolled into bales, upon which early rising chickens perch to avoid the dew-soaked ground. Corn and milo will still be standing. The search is conveniently reduced to grass ridges. Boy, those bales. We discovered those in our late teens, early 20s on a wet, dewy morning. We'd look out, see this big field of hay bales. What's sitting on the top of that bale? That's too big for a meadowlark. Be a prairie chicken sitting up there. Go out and there would be other ones probably feeding around the bale, but they would sit on top of those bales and become quite obvious. So we started hunting with binoculars. It was pretty cool. So back to the uh, grass ridges. Something about grassland ridges attracts chickens, especially at dawn. When it's calm, you can hear them talking up there. Little squeaks, bubbles, and cackles. Walk out to surprise them, and you'll be the surprised one. Surprised at how much farther they are than you thought they'd be. But if your dog holds his point, you'll get into them. Here is the place for the pointing dogs of the American myth. Big running pointers and setters with hot noses that sweep horizon to horizon. They'd better be in shape. I watched a buddy carry his young white bitch setter from the grasslands one opening day. Another fellow's big male setter ran and ran until he fell over. We revived him with a dunk in a pond. Chicken country is big and hot. It'll burn out a dog unless you hunt smart. Over the years, we've learned a few tricks. If it's hot and calm, chickens will pant in the shade and be loath to fly. In the absence of shade, they like fairly open ridgetops where the breeze can reach them. When it's cold and windy, they just sit just below the ridgetops, leeward side, and they flush wild. The wilder the wind, the wilder the chickens. Woody or grassy swales that project into grain fields are often concentration points. The first pocket of brush down these draws can be a magnet on hot afternoons. Irrigated alfalfa fields, low swales, roadside ditches, any place that's still green is popular for a feeding site during drought. You can always depend on these places whenever you happen to find chickens in them. When you don't, look somewhere else. You didn't expect such a rare and glamorous bird to be easy, did you? That was good, man. Does that sound like the chicken hunt you remember? Uh, yes. Parts of it matter. anyway. And, but you can't remember it. <laughs> Honey, there have been too many hunts for me. They sort of blend together. Okay. So what, tell me the difference between like their sharp tails when they dance and how the prairie chickens dance. Oh, you know, the two will actually crossbreed. 
So their dances are different, but they are closely related enough that sometimes, you know, in a pinch, you will get crossbreeding between the two species. And I've seen it in South Dakota. I've seen a chicken dancing on a lek with a sharp tail and vice versa. So the difference in the birds is that sharp tails are, they're more versatile and they don't need the tall grass prairie. I don't, you know, there's so little tall grass prairie left anywhere that it's kind of hard to determine exactly what the, uh, Prairie chickens preferred about the tall grasses that the sharptails didn't. The sharptail was a bird of the mixed grass prairie, which would be a little bit of tall grass, but then a lot of the short grasses. So little blue stem instead of big blue stem. And buffalo grasses on the really high plains. That's the shortest of the short grass. Uh, you get the intermediate wheat grass, uh, side oats, grandma grasses, uh, different ones. So that's kind of the biggest difference. Now, sharptails feed a lot on brush too, and they will go, they're native all the way up into Alaska. Well, we're lucky enough to have sharptails where we live now. Yeah, and uh, they'll get all the way up into Wisconsin. Uh, I think the Upper Peninsula of Michigan has some. So they're a little more adapted to woodlands, I think, than chickens. Chickens are more pure grassland and then tall grass. And the chickens are barred underneath. They kind of look like they've got jail uh, uniform on horizontal bars and they're pretty dark and the sharp tail has got a white bright white belly with little v checks on it vertical v checks and they've got a sharply pointed tail whereas the chicken has a short black tail that's more squared off so they used to call them square tails um, and then when chickens are, are dancing they have this weird booming sound that's almost like outer space it's a Again. I just did. <laughs> and they blow out these uh, tympanic membranes on the side of their necks, uh, neck sacs, we call them. And uh, they get orange and I don't know, the size of a golf ball, maybe a little bigger. And then they've got orange eyebrows, we call them, little. And they're not feathers, but it's like pre-feathers. I don't really know what that stuff is, but it's a bright orange. And so they erect those. And then they've got these pinnated feathers, uh, long feathers hanging over their neck sacks. And they stick those up like horns. Sharptails don't have them. They've just got this beautiful lilac neck sack on them. Uh, but th Well, we've photographed and videotaped the um, sharptails. Yeah. So if anybody wants to look on our YouTube yeah, yeah, we've got a little YouTube video of Sharptails dancing. I forget what we called it, Dancing Sharptails, Dancing Springs Ranch. I had to remember, but they are really, really magical. Uh, just so much fun to watch. Well, what I've been surprised is even, I mean, all those birds have a different mating sound, like the Huns we heard drumming in the woods. Rough grouse. Rough grouse, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the Hun that you mentioned, it's the only one I've really never Never heard or seen their spring display on them because they pair off just a male and a female and they don't have a big display kind of a thing. Obviously, the rough grouse is all comers and the male has his own little territory staked out. So he's solo, solo act, drums to attract the females and they drum at such a low pitch. You know, that sounds like a John Deere tractor starting mm -hmm. up. Well, I heard it for the first time when we were turkey hunting, and I thought, what the heck is that? Yeah. What I'm amazed is how much I don't know about, <laughs> about the outdoors. We'll get, I'm still yeah. learning. Yeah, well, that's good. It gives you something to look forward to. 
But yeah, the grouse are really, really special. They're all, all the grouse are Northern Hemisphere animal, but they're circumpolar. So they're in, in Russia, as you know, when we hunted the black grouse over there mm-hmm. and the Capricaylee, you know, they have grouse that are pretty comparable to ours. The black grouse, I would say, is about like our prairie chicken. They have a really weird sound. We got to put something out on uh, YouTube on that because that sound, talk about outer space. They could have used that sound for the old B-grade outer space movies back in the 50s and 60s. It's weird stuff. I got to play that for him sometime. That is fun. But the grouse have all evolved for the different habitats in the northern hemisphere. So some of them are in the conifer woods, some are in the hardwoods, some are in the brushlands, some are in the grasslands. You know, it's just remarkable the way they all adapt to a special niche habitat. So the furthest south ones in North America would have been the Atwater's prairie chicken along the coast of Texas. And there's still a few of those left, but they're extremely endangered species because the habitat is almost all gone down there. And uh, yeah, it's sad, but the heath hen, remember that one? The endangered heath hen got, became extinct. They talk about the extinct heath hen. I always wondered what that was. It was a prairie chicken. It was the eastern version of the prairie chicken. It would have been in Massachusetts, New York State. The last one was on, I think, Martha's Vineyard. Is that on Long Island? No. it's Right off of there? But they were on Long Island, Martha's Vineyard, whatever that was. Some islands out there that had heath, this short brush. And they, of course, got market hunted. And then they decided this is getting to be too much. We've got to stop hunting them. Let the population build up again. And they were being pretty successful. And according to the history, they had, I don't know, a hundred or a couple hundred heath hens out there. The population was gradually building up again. And they had a, a winter invasion of goshawks from the North Country, which happens fairly regularly. The population builds up and then they come south to find something to eat, kind of like snowy owls do. But they key on grouse. Gothawks or deer falcons. Maybe it was deer falcons, one or the other or both. But at any rate, these hawks came down in huge numbers and they swiped them out. There was after, after that winter, there was one male left, the only one that anyone ever saw again. And for a couple of seasons, he, they called him Lonesome George or something, but he was out there doing his dance. What year was this himself. about? Do you know? Oh, it would have probably been the late 1800s, I would imagine. I haven't also read a it. long time ago. Yes, yes, it was a long time ago. Well, no sad commentary, but it was the habitat. You're not going to have, I'm sure there wouldn't be any prairie chickens if you had 6,000 of them to reintroduce to Martha's Vineyard and that island, Long Island. I don't think they find any place to dance, but on somebody's rooftop, probably. But habitat is always the key. That's why we have so many sharp tails here. We've just got ideal habitat for them. So... Yeah. If you want birds, upland birds especially, you've got to have their native habitat. But as this sharp or this prairie chicken has shown and sharp deals to a large degree, adding a little bit of agriculture can really help because it it frees up that bottleneck of forage and food. It gets more food. They've got plenty of grass to hide in. That's why it's critical. But then with annual seeds like wheat and, and oats and sorghum and corn and all those high energy annual seeds, you don't get that in, in the wild nature that much. You get some wild sunflowers and a few things, but wow, big difference when you've got a huge quantity of food. So sharp uh, prairie chickens right now in South Dakota, the population will go up and down depending on how much rainfall and whatever. 
But in general, that's the place to go. Nebraska is really good. I think North Dakota has a few, but it's getting a little too far north for them. So if anyone's interested in chickens, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, those are the big three. And get out there. Most of the seasons will open in September. It can be really hot and hard on both you and the dog. But if you get out early in the morning, you should be able to get into birds fairly quickly. And then you can rest up in the middle of the day, maybe hit it again in the evening. But if you want that late season hunt where the birds come in large flocks to the fields, you just glass, do some studying, figure out where those birds fly in. And then they've got a pretty tight schedule. If you see the birds flying in at Oh, dark 30, one evening, you can pretty much count on the same flight path into the same field at the same time the next day and the next day. So is there public lands for people? Yeah, lots of good, good. No, no, good, good point. I think there's mostly locked up, but there are a lot of public lands in South Dakota and a fair number in Nebraska. Look for the waterfowl production areas. I find these birds hanging out in the grass on the edges of the wetlands quite a bit. Fort Pure National Grasslands is kind of every chicken hunter's nirvana. Everybody knows about it if they're a serious chicken hunter. That's wide open. Uh, So there are some grasslands there that are open. The um, edges of the Missouri River in South Dakota are managed by either Fish and Game or Department of the, uh, let's see, the Army Corps of Engineers. So it's public land along the edges of the reservoirs. But some of those edges will drop back, I think, as much as a half a mile into the grasslands. So those can be really good. And uh, yeah, wide open. Just get get on your two hind legs or ride a horse. I've hunted by horseback out there and that was pretty pretty nice treat, picking up chickens that way. So yeah. There's no coronavirus. So for those who can travel by car, they can get out there and- Yeah, it's a coronavirus, not a prairie chicken virus. I know, but it's coronavirus free. <laughs> yes, it is. Yep. I mean, as long as you're by yourself or- or with other coronavirus-free people. Yeah. And yeah. your dog. Yeah, give it a try if you ever wanted a real special treat. This is an all-American, North American bird, the only place it lives. So it's really special. The prairie chicken is a greater prairie chicken and a lesser prairie chicken. The lesser prairie chicken is now off limits. And that's down in New Mexico, Colorado, Southeast Colorado, Southwest Kansas. That's a, a bird for another time and another topic because I hunted them years ago too. And they're kind of special. So this is Ron Spomer uh, ending another podcast here, uh, inviting you to check things out on Ron Spomer Outdoors website and our YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ron Spomer Outdoors. Uh, Wishing you a successful bird hunting season this fall. Uh, I hope you can get out and get out often and always hunt honest and shoot straight. search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hogs cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.